Matthew 26 in your Bibles. This, the power of the cross. Good truths we're singing this morning. You know, when you sing songs that are true and you are warmed and encouraged, that's a, that's a good indicator that you're a Christian. Uh, these songs wouldn't move you. These truths wouldn't move you if Christ wasn't yours. Uh, if they don't move you, don't freak out. Just turn to Christ. <laughs> Just look to Christ. Ask Him to warm your heart toward Him. Matthew chapter 26, starting this morning in verse 36. Jesus has uh, eaten the Passover meal with his disciples. He has predicted both Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. And uh, we come into this text this morning and we see these realities play out. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Starting in verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he prayed for the second time. He went away, prayed, Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, and the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. He kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should, should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, how, how you come out, how you have you, I'm sorry, I can't read, have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, and at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to be, rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We have heard now blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. They spit in his face, struck him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? 
Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them, all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. Then he said to invoke a curse on himself. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept, wept bitterly. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful for us to put him back to the treasury since this is blood money. So they took counsel and brought, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come into this text, that you would illuminate our hearts, our minds, that we might know your word, that we might hear your word, as your word, that we might be convicted by it and assured of your love for us within it. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. In 1978, in England, there was what's called the, the fireman's strike. Firefighters went on strike. And the English army, the British army, took up their role in emergency fire calls. On January 14th that year, there was a call uh, by an elderly woman as her cat was, uh, was stuck. This stuff actually happens, all right? Her cat was stuck. Brandon, you used to be on an ambulance. Did you ever get a call like that? Not that crazy. Cat's stuck. So she loves her cat, so the British Army goes out in their trucks and do a, they do a great job. Very skilled retrieval of kitty cat. And the elderly woman is so happy that she doesn't even let them leave. She says, come on in. She has them all in for tea. And they, they enjoy some time together. They drink a cup of tea. Sometime later, they're, they're finally leaving, and, and they're smiling, and arms are, are waving farewell, and they run over the cat and kill it. True story. Have you ever disappointed anybody? You know, uh, it is one thing to disappoint an elderly woman. And to get serious for a moment, it is quite another to disappoint Jesus Christ. Have you ever disappointed Jesus Christ? We come into this text today and we see disappointment. I'm going to talk uh, through this text, I'm going to preach through this text, hopefully, uh, under a simple few words, betrayed and denied. Betrayed and denied. Have you ever thought that you were strong? 
You thought, I don't mean physically strong. I mean like spiritually strong. Like I think I've got this. I think I can do this. I am not going to commit that sin. And then you do? Like have you ever fallen into some kind of sin that is so ugly and so dirty and so vile and foul? It's something that you never would have dreamed you would have fallen into. And then you find yourself falling. Have you ever been there before? Anybody? Are you with me? And unlike the cat, it wasn't an accident. You intentionally fell into that dreadful, ugly, dark place. You intentionally walked to this place of filth. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Look at verse 41. Jesus says himself to his disciples, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Why do we fall? It's because the flesh is weak. Last week, we started off with the song, Jesus Loves Me. And I reminded you of those lyrics, I am weak, but he is strong. It's a song for all of us. We are weak people. To be a Christian is to humbly say, I am weak. I need help. The Spirit is willing. Like We, we don't want to fall. You didn't want to do that. You didn't want to pick that up. You didn't want to go back into that. But the flesh is so weak. That's why we fall. That's why his disciples here all fail him. They all fall away. Now we have to go back. Just last week, we, we, we saw kind of part one of this. We saw Jesus predict that they're going to fall. He predicted that, that he's going to be betrayed. He predicted that he's going to be denied. And in the midst of all of that chaos, he picks up a cup. And he says, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Wow. In the midst of predicting that he's going to be failed by his disciples, he's already making a way to forgive their sins. You're going to drink this, and you're going to remember that I took the cup for you. Now, as we get into this story, we continue from what we saw last week. After the Passover meal, they, Jesus and, and now his 11 disciples, Judas has gone off, remember. His, Jesus and his 11 disciples sneak away to a quiet grove right outside the city on a slope. It's called Gethsemane. And we see here in Gethsemane that they get there to, to, to find some quiet, uh, to pray, most likely before turning in for the night. Jesus leaves the majority of his disciples probably at the entrance of the grove, and he goes a little deeper into the grove with, with his inner core, Peter, James, and John. And then Jesus goes even further, and, and here Jesus has what is the most excruciating moment in his life prior to the cross, and that is this time of agony, this time of being pressed, this time of temptation by the devil, and a time of prayer. And here in Gethsemane, Jesus' humanity is seen. I don't mean that in the sense that Jesus sins. Jesus is sinless in his humanity. That's how he can be a rightful Savior for you. But we see his humanity here in the garden. We see here in the garden that it's actually okay to pray a prayer that God doesn't answer, at least in the way that we prayed it. Jesus, in agony, he says, God, if it is possible, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, verse 41. You see it right there? He's praying, God, let this cup pass from me. Or verse 39, I'm sorry. Let this cup pass from me. What is the cup that he's referring to? In Jeremiah 25, 15, God says, take this cup of wine of my wrath. 
In Isaiah 51, 17, God says, O Israel, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. All throughout the Old Testament, the cup of wine, the cup is a symbol of God's wrath. And Jesus here prays in the garden, God, if it is possible, if there is any possibility to let this cup, the cup of God's divine wrath for sin, to let it pass from me, uh, God, Father, let it be. Now immediately, this is his obedience to the Father, his sinless nature, he immediately answers his own prayer. He's reminded of his own plan his own willing submission to the plan of God in our redemption, and he says, nevertheless, may your will be done. Well, what do we get from this? We, we get a couple things. One, we get the fact that Jesus was not just some, some kind of emotionless stoic that went to the cross, like a robot. He's, he's just doing stuff, and he's not feeling anything. You know, well, of course, Jesus could go to the cross, and he could go. He was God, right? No, but we see his humanity. He felt every bit of it. He felt uh, every bit of the pain, but even beyond that, the, 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 uh, the wrath of God, spiritual wrath of God coming on the, the full cup the weight of your sin, the weight of your guilt, and the penalty for that coming down upon him. Jesus felt every bit of it. Also, we see this. We see that there was no other way. Jesus himself says, if there is any other way, let it be. You know, it's funny. Sometimes Christians will speculate. Well, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. It was a symbol. He did it for this reason. But God could have forgiven sins anyway. then why didn't God tell Jesus that in the garden? <laughs> if it's possible, any other way. But nevertheless, may your will be done. The only way possible for you to be forgiven was for Jesus to drink every bit of the cup of God's wrath for your sin. Jesus himself recognized that and willingly walked toward cross. Now, all this time, his disciples are snoozing, all right? (laughs) They're nodding off. Look at verse 41. He wakes them up. This is the first time he goes out, probably to Peter and the boys, just the, the small crew right there. And, uh, and they're to be watching, they're to be waiting, preparing, and they're sleeping. And, you know, in some sense, like in our flesh, can you blame them? It's been a long day, Passover prep, they've eaten a big meal, um, and now they're sitting, uh, waiting. But, um, but they're, they're nodding off. Listen, if you're nodding off right now, get up and get some coffee. You don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss what happens as a result of Jesus' disciples nodding off when he's trying to talk to them. Some of you are nodding off. Why are you nodding off when God is trying to talk to you? Get up and get some coffee if you need to. Hey, can I have permission to wake you up if you nod off today? I've done it. When I was in uh, college, I was in preaching class, and, there, and I, my, the, sir, the, my title was called Wake Up. <laughs> and uh, a guy named Matt was sitting in the front row, and he fell asleep and was starting to snore. And I watched for him. I was like, wake up! And he's like, amen, amen. <laughs> so they're, they're nodding off. Why is it that Jesus wants them to stay awake? He says, he's clear, he says, you've got to be praying, or you've got to be prepping yourself. You don't know, Peter, the pressure that's about to come to you. You've got no clue 
what is about to happen in the next couple hours. You don't know the kind of temptation that you are going to be under as soon as this is over to deny Christ. Friends, you don't know what Satan has lined up for you, waiting for you just down these stairs and out that door. Stay awake. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know you don't want to fall, but your flesh is weak, and you're trusting in your flesh. You're not trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he goes back and he prays a second time, comes back, sees him sleeping. Now at this point, he just lets him snooze. It seems like, at least. He goes back a third time. He prays. He's agonizing. God, if there's any other way, he resolves to do the will of, of God to take on the sins of the world. He comes back out, and now their quiet is disrupted in verse 45. He says, Take your, we're going to sleep later. You're going to sleep later. But right now it's time to get up because if you look down the slope, our betrayer, my betrayer, is at hand. Here comes an army probably with torches. We know they have clubs. They have swords. And in front of them is Jesus' friend, Judas. You see, Jesus has been around crowds the entire time. They don't want to arrest him during Passover, much less during, in, in the midst of a crowd. But this betrayer has given them a prime opportunity to lead them to where he knows Jesus is going to be in private. And they'll arrest him away from the crowds. And they come as an army, ready to fight. We see Judas comes up first in verse 49. He greets Jesus and he calls him rabbi. He says, look at, look at, look at it right there. I want you to see it in verse 40, 49. He says, greetings, rabbi. I want you to know that Jesus never calls Jesus any, uh, Judas never calls Jesus any higher title than rabbi. All the other disciples call him Lord. Jesus, Judas never once calls Jesus Lord. He greets him. He kisses him, which was a common, um, a common greeting between friends. Verse 50, Jesus calls Judas friend. How that must have cut. How humbling that must have been when he hears Jesus call him friend. Do, do what you came to do. The kindness of Christ in the midst of all of this. His grace even toward his friend who's, who's betraying him. Peter pulls out his sword. Says he cut off the ear of a soldier. I don't think Peter was going for the ear. If you've ever seen ancient Roman uh, head, headgear, their ears would stick out. He probably was coming straight down on the, on, the, on the head, slipped down to the ear. He was trying to kill. Peter was picking up a sword to fight. We're not going out this way. We learn later in another gospel that Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on the soldier. Jesus is not going to fight it's not a war against the flesh. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. Now Jesus is arrested. He's taken back into the city of Jerusalem to a, an illegal hearing. Under the cover of darkness during the Passover season, uh, it's not publicly announced. This is an illegal hearing at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, in his palace. Now, the religious leaders here at this hearing, they become judge, prosecutor, jury, and the witnesses. They try Jesus illegally and say, we are going to condemn him for something. Now, they had no expectation that they would arrest Jesus this quickly. And so it seems as if they're having trouble lining up witnesses. They're trying to find somebody who can testify against Jesus and get something again. Like, We've got to find some place where he, he broke the law. 
but it seems like they're just failing. They can't find anybody. All of these witnesses come, ah, get them off. No, that's ridiculous. Drag, what? Get, get them off. It's just all of these false testimonies. It's not, but then we see in verse, uh, verse 60, finally they get something they can work with. In verse 50, there's at last two come forward, and they say, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Where is it Jesus never actually said? Uh, they're misconstruing some things that he said, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to work for him, they think. And uh, so then finally, the linchpin comes in verse 63 when the high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ? Because if there's this threat against the temple, and then if Jesus claims to be the Christ, and that means he has authority over the temple, and that means he could actually do something with his threat. You, you follow his logic there? So then he asks him, are you the Christ? Now finally the lamb opens his mouth, and he says one true statement that if it was heard by the religious leaders, it would be enough to convert them on the spot. But they don't hear it. Not in the way that it should be heard, at least. Jesus says to them, you have said so, but, until, but, but, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then with that, it's just all over. Clothes being torn, blasphemy, accusations, they beat him, they mock him, they slap him, they spit on him, and they illegally now condemn him to death. Now, in the midst of all of this, you've seen someone else. Who's kind of hanging around? Do you see anybody you recognize in there? Who is it? Peter, thank you. Peter, 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 he's determined. Remember, Peter spoke up for the, all, all the other uh, disciples and said, we will never leave you. We will follow you to death. Now in verse 56, we saw they all left him. All the disciples have fled, scurried, scattered, hid. They are gone. And Peter, he's, he, I respect Peter in some fashion. Right? I see Peter, it's, like, it's sort of like he's, this is the best of, the best of my flesh right there. He, I, I, he is trying to be brave He's trying to stick by Jesus, and so Peter's following along, and so he goes into the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. This is a dangerous move. This is a square with four walls. And by the way, the disciples of an insurrectionist are often crucified along with the insurrectionist. There is a real threat of death for Peter and for the rest of the, the disciples. Peter, I believe, is more brave than all of the other ten. He's there in Caiaphas' courtyard. He then goes into the room where Jesus is being tried, and through the crowd he can see Christ standing there, uttering yeah, the words, yes, I am the, I am the Christ. Peter's sitting with the guards, hoping to blend in. Then we see Peter, now he's outside, he's back out in the courtyard, and he's taking a seat. Maybe he's stunned. But, and and the, the temptation to deny Christ is going to come at him in, in a way that he never imagined. He's going to be crushed in this moment by the world. Someone notices him. Someone recognizes him. It's a young servant girl. And she says, hey, I, I saw this man with him. Nope. Immediately. First response. And then another person argues with him. Another servant girl, she says, yes, you were with him. I've seen you with him. Verse 70, verse 72, he, he denies Christ. And then finally, someone else says, uh, says listen, listen to his accent. He's got that Galilean draw. I know there ain't many Galileans around right now. His accent is giving him, giving him away, and, and he denies, he, he, he bring, draws down a curse, it says, which would be sort of like, may God strike me dead, I don't know him. I never knew the man. Immediately a rooster crows and Peter weeps as he remembers J Jesus' own prediction of this moment. He, he, he was crushed under the 
pressures of the world. Now we continue to go on with the story and we see Judas. Judas, the, 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 the guilt sets in with Judas. He takes the 30 pieces of silver and he throws it back at the feet of the religious leaders and they just mock him. He says, I, I gave an innocent man. You've condemned him. He was innocent. And they mock Judas. What's it, it's not our problem. And Judas' own end is written very simply here in verse 5. It says, he departed and he went and hanged himself. What can we learn from this? Well, there's much we can learn from this. We could talk about the kindness of Christ toward his adversaries. We could talk about Christ's great love for his disciples, his forgiving spirit. We could talk about the sovereignty of Christ in all of this, that he knows that he's planned this, that he's, he's in control, even when things seem out of control. We could talk about the ugliness of, of crucifying Jesus Christ, an innocent man. But I think there's a major thread, a theme that Matthew has here in his own account of this story. What Matthew, I believe, is repeating over and over, if you haven't noticed it already, that I want to just highlight, and this is what we're going to learn from this, is this. It, we're, we're seeing a theme of failure. Not by Jesus Christ, but failure by his disciples. Failure by people just like you and me. His own 12 disciples have failed him. Now, we all have committed the sins of both Judas and Peter. We have all betrayed Jesus. We have sold him out for the temporal pleasures that the world has to offer us. We have sold him out for a love affair, for pornography. We have sold him out to get some money that we haven't earned. We have sold him out for the, for the temporal pleasures that drugs and alcohol can bring in, into, our, uh, into our life temporarily as we get drunk or as we use drugs to, to get high. We have sold him out for the temporal pleasures that the world can offer us. For 30 pieces of silver, we sold him out. We have denied Christ. We have kept silent around our friends. We have not opened our mouth when we know it would be unpopular to talk about Jesus in this moment. We've kind of blended in with the sinner at times, haven't you? I haven't, there's been some times in your life where you, you, you just would uh, be fine with people not knowing you're a Christian right now. And, uh, and I'm not going to tell them that I'm a Christian because if I do that, I can't do the next thing that I want to do. Right? If I tell them I'm a Christian right now, then I'll be a hypocrite. So I'm not going to tell them. We've denied him so many times, time after time. We have kept our mouths shut. We have been silent. We have hesitated. We have at times maybe even said, no, I don't know the man. And if you haven't denied him with your mouth, you've denied him with your life. Friends, listen, I don't want to explore the question why we fail Christ. We could explore that. But I don't want to explore the question so much why we fail Christ. I'm going to give you a simple answer for that. It's because we trust in our flesh, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. The flesh is weak. That's why we fail Him. I want to explore the question, what do you do when you fail Him? Friday and Saturday just happened. What do you do after the weekend when you failed Him again? What do you do? Not why do we fail him, but what do you do when you fail Christ? And I want to talk about this just simply through looking at Judas and Peter. We see two people who failed Jesus. Friends, I don't believe Judas' sin was worse than Peter's. They both committed a great sin, betraying and denying Christ. But we see two very different responses to their failure. 
And that's what I want to talk about here just for the last couple minutes. With Judas, we see what we could call worldly sorrow, which leads to death. With Peter, we see what we could call godly sorrow that leads to life. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Let me read that again. Godly sorrow brings repentance, leads to salvation, and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Let's talk about Judas for a moment. Judas and worldly sorrow. Judas, worldly sorrow leads to death. What is worldly sorrow? We all know it. We've all been a victim of worldly sorrow, meaning you feel bad about what you did. You guys, do you know that feeling bad about what you did doesn't mean you're a Christian? Judas felt really bad about what he did. What is worldly sorrow? I think kids, babies are born with worldly sorrow. I've, I've had a couple. I've seen a number of them. And you know what a, a toddler does when they know that they're not supposed to um, defecate in their diaper? You know what they do? They hide. I think it was my nephew. You always, you always knew something was up when he was hiding behind the couch. I know what happened. Worldly sorrow hides shame, withdrawal. I can't take it. Here, with Judas taking his own life, that's not to say that a Christian may not take their own life. Don't just broad brush that. But we see very clearly that Judas, in his worldly sorrow, hid to such a degree that he took his own life. I heard someone who had fallen into a sin. He was a religious leader. He said, I just want to dig a hole and crawl in and never come out. So much shame. What is that? That is not godly sorrow. That is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorrow without God. Worldly sorrow is sorrow with yourself at the highest pinnacle of authority and of glory. Worldly sorrow, someone said, they described it this way, worldly sorrow is filled with self-pity, which means I can't believe that I did this. I can't believe that I'm at this place. Self-pity. It's also filled with personal embarrassment. What are other people going to think about me? Worldly sorrow is filled with shameful regret. I will never get over this. Worldly sorrow is filled with unbelieving guilt, which means I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. What will people think of me? I will never get over this. I can't believe I did it. Judas experienced a sorrow without grace. Judas saw Christ as merely a rabbi, not Lord, not Savior, not hope, not king, not treasure, just merely a rabbi, a teacher. And so when Judas wronged his teacher, he had no greater authority to turn to. And that's the problem with worldly sorrow. When you, when you say, I, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, the answer is, is, no, you don't. You don't know that God forgives you. And if you do think that God forgives you, but you still can't forgive yourself, that means you think higher of yourself and your own opinion of yourself than what God thinks of you. Because if, if, if you know that God forgives you and God is the highest authority in your life, it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. God forgives you. And so I can forgive myself. Stop that stupid humility stuff. I, it's not humility. You know what I'm saying. False humility. It's pride is what it is. That's worldly sorrow. Now let's look at Peter. Peter here has godly sorrow, which leads to life. I think of the story of the prodigal son. I love the story of the prodigal son. Do you know the story? How much, how much in depth do I need to go? Let me know. Do you know the story? 
Some people don't. Briefly, son takes his father's goods, takes his father's inheritance, asks the father, can I have my inheritance ahead of time? The son, he's called the prodigal because he goes out. He goes out, he takes his father's good, and he squanders all that is his father's stuff. Takes advantage of his father's grace. Takes advantage of his father's kindness and goodness. I'm out of time. I'm going to just keep preaching here. The prodigal son squanders all that is his, his inheritance. Finds himself eating with the swine. What does the prodigal son do? When he hits rock bottom, what does he do? Does he say, oh, I can never go home. Too much shame. I can never go home. Too much embarrassment. What will people think of me? What will the servants think of me if I ever show my... It will be easier for me in my shame to just find a little hole and live in it for the rest of my life. What does the prodigal son do? The prodigal son goes home to the father. And what is he met with? He's met with the father's grace. He's met with the father's grace. Godly sorrow doesn't hide, but godly sorrow owns up to what we've done and walks home to the grace of the Father. Someone put it this way. They said, I need grace to be a quick repenter. If I don't have grace, it's going to take me a long time to repent. But the more grace we have, check this out, the more quicker, I know that's not good English, we can repent. I need grace to be a quick repenter. Worldly sorrow is sorrow without grace. Godly sorrow is sorrow with grace. God is a God that forgives impossible screw-ups. Worldly sorrow is seen all over our society, in our community. What happens when somebody messes up? They either move They can't face their neighbor anymore. I'm leaving. Or they deny it and they can't own up to the reality that they screwed up. This happens often in the church as well. In the church, what we'll see is two realities. In the church, someone might sin greatly and they are so embarrassed they never show their face again in the church. And when people in the church think of that individual, they're, they're thought of with sadness as one who went out. But the person who has godly sorrow knows where to find the means of grace. The person with godly sorrow comes back and is showered in forgiveness and is showered and bathed in the grace of God and they're remembered as a faithful sister who wasn't perfect who experienced and saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Worldly sorrow causes us to hide. Godly sorrow causes us to turn to each other, to turn to the means of grace, to go back to community group as quick as possible, to get to church on Sunday, to get into his word, to call up your accountability partner that you've been avoiding for four weeks. You know where the means of grace are found. And if you have godly sorrow, shame doesn't matter. Guilt, the the, the feeling of guilt, it doesn't matter. Embarrassment doesn't matter. If you have godly sorrow, you know where the means of grace are found and you go there as quick as you possibly can. Who can you talk to? When you screw up, who can you confess these to? Who, but who, you, what humans do you have in your life that you can fit, talk to? No, you do, Tony. You do. You know what? Everybody look around right now. You've got all these people sitting around that you can confess, you can come clean with. And you know what? I guarantee you'll find in this church is forgiveness and grace. Oh, we love to hear people confess their sins because that means they're not hiding. No shame, no embarrassment, no guilt. I claim the grace of God 
in my life. And we bathe one another in it. You know the best way to mock Satan? It would be this morning after doing what you know you did yesterday. This morning, shouting hallelujah, Christ is Lord. Christ is Savior. You know what devil means? Devil means accuser. You know how to spit in the face of the devil? It's to sing and it's to shout and it's to believe and it's to embrace the wonder and the glory of the Savior. And in Christ, there is no accusation to be made because you have Christ all over you. He forgave you. He imputed his righteousness to you and you stand before him clean. Judas dies for his own sin. Jesus dies for your sin. He died a death for your sin. He took the cup of God's wrath for you. It put him in the ground. He lay buried in the ground. All hope lost, absolutely not. Three days later, rose from the dead. Check this out. Peter. Why is Peter scared? It's because the world can turn against him. It's because the world might embarrass him. It's because the world might accuse him. At worst, the world might kill him. But if you serve a Savior who's died, buried, and then rose again and says, come all to me, trust in me, hope in me, and I will give you this hope of being raised in glory as well, what fear in life is there? No fear in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. What is the worst that the world can do to you? The world can kill you. But God raises the dead. And so we see Peter as one who turns to Christ in godly sorrow, repents, and follows him. You say, where do you see that, Joel? It's not in the text. All we see in the text is Peter weeping. But we've got to fast forward a little bit. In John chapter 21, we see an occurrence, a, a narrative, a story of Jesus Christ and his disciples, in particular Peter, after Jesus' resurrection, after he's risen victorious over death and over sin. Peter, he's out on the boat, and everything in his life is about to change. He's out on the boat, and he sees Jesus on the shore. They're fishing out there. Jesus on the shore. They're going to start paddling back. Peter says, ah, that's too slow for me. He puts his clothes on and he jumps into the sea and he swims as fast as he can swim to his Savior, the one who he denied, Jesus Christ. Now check this out. I hate to use this analogy, but I've got to, if I was Jesus, all right, if I was Jesus, I would give Peter the cold shoulder. Just a little passive uh, uh, aggressiveness. What's up, man? All right. Yeah, made fish. You know you would too. Maybe you're the fighter type. I don't know what you would do. What do we see Jesus do in John 21? Jesus engages Peter. Jesus starts the conversation. Peter gets to the shore and Jesus says do you love me? He's engaging him. Why does he ask, do you love me, three times in John 21? It's because Peter denied him three times. And Jesus is going to get him to affirm his love for him three times. Do you love me? Yes, I do. I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I do. I love you. Do you love me? You've asked me that already. Yes, I love you. Not only does Jesus approach Peter in forgiveness, reconciling a relationship, renewing a love relationship between the two, but Peter, Jesus then commissions Peter, and he says, well, then feed my sheep. He puts him on mission, and Peter now is going to be a servant of this Jesus Christ. He's called him into his service, and then Jesus goes on, and Jesus predicts Peter's own death. 
He says there is going to be a time where your arms will be stretched and you will be led into a place where you do not want to go, and that is to, sh- to, to, uh, to, to reference the death that, is, that Peter is going to die. And he follows it with two words. Follow me. Follow me. Remember, Jesus said, I will follow you to the death. Jesus now is renewing Peter in love, commissioning him into service, and calling him to, with a spirit-driven, spirit-empowered kind of obedience, to do what Peter wanted to do in the first place, and that is to follow Jesus to death. Follow me. Follow me. And that call comes to every single one of us. He's worth it. Jesus is worth it. When I come into the grace of Christ and I experience His forgiveness, He's worth it. I recognize that He requires all of me. But He's done all the work for me. And He's worth it. I realize that He's calling me to live a life that is out of sync with this world, but He's worth it. I recognize that He's calling me to live a life that might bring accusations from the world upon me, but He's worth it. I realize that He might call me even to die for Him physically. And He might call you to die for Him physically, but He's worth it, friends. And if He doesn't call you to your physical death, He calls you to die daily to Him, and He's worth it. We sang this song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. I remember when I was a senior in high school and God had captured my heart. I was singing that song in church, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And I'm thinking of the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, did all the work for us. And we got to verse 5 when I, when I was singing this song, and it says here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do when we encounter the grace of this Savior, we recognize that He's worth it. We walk not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And He's worth it. I can forgive myself because God has forgiven me. I can forget my mistakes because God has separated my guilt as far as the East is from the West. It doesn't matter what others think of you or of me because God in heaven calls you his child, his friend. Jesus calls you his brother and sister. Let's give our life fully to him and follow him. Amen? Father, we thank you for this call to follow Christ this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would help us in doing just that, that we would be found obedient and faithful to him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.